welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. We are in Luke chapter 23. Now we find Jesus standing all alone, all alone. Virtually everyone now has abandoned him. In fact, I believe this is probably a contributing reason as to why Pontius Pilate, uh, the Roman governor over Judea, doesn't buy the allegation that uh, Jesus is a seditious zealot or is a seditious threat at all. Uh, you know, Pilate had been ruling over this region for years now, at least four years, maybe longer by this time. And he had earned quite a reputation. Uh, He was an accomplished politician, a military commander, a political and military figure who violently suppressed any sign of rebellion. In fact, Luke, back in chapter 13, uh, he introduces the reader to Pilate by reminding us during a previous religious feast, a merciless Pilate mingled the blood of some of those seditious zealots from Galilee. He mingled their blood with their own sacrifices. So if it was mingled with their sacrifices, uh, it gives us uh, an indicator there that that massacre occurred at the temple. So if Pilate you know, caught even a sniff of rebellion against Rome. He saw it as his uh, prerogative and privilege, actually, to suppress it, to put it down. Yet we're going we're gonna to learn in this passage that, that G, uh, Pilate does not sense this with Christ. If Jesus presented a threat to Rome, Pilate might have wondered to himself, yeah, you and what army, you know? He looks around him and... You and who else? Every one of his disciples had fled to hide. Peter was last seen uh, weeping in a corner somewhere. And, and only John appears to have remained with Christ. We aren't sure, uh, but he remained close by. Uh, but many speculate that he even wasn't much older than a boy. John was one of the very young ones, hardly seen as a capable threat to the Roman legionnaires. So in verse 1, when this entire Sanhedrin now meets, there's 70 of them in all. When the entire Sanhedrin drag a solitary Jesus before Pilate, uh, he must have instantly sensed some kind of injustice here. Something was going on, he could tell. Pilate had been around long enough to realize the Sanhedrin, it consisted of uh, divided factions, you had priests and Pharisees and Sadducees, and, and they could previously never agree on anything. They never got along. Yet this Passover, they all want, together they want this religious figure named Jesus dead. This didn't, by the way, rise to a high priority level for Pilate. This wasn't something that he really wanted to be involved with. Let's begin by reading from Luke chapter 23 and verse 1. 
Then the whole body of them, that is the Sanhedrin, got up and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But, then kept, uh, but they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by Jesus. And he questioned him at some length, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating Jesus with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. You know, the Sanhedrin, they must have thought in their solidarity, uh, with, with their unanimous assertion that Jesus was guilty. They, they must have thought they could have swayed Pilate, but their solidarity only raised suspicion. So Pilate, Pilate knows something is up here. He was a shrewd character. And, and what he sees really kind of unveils a, a tragic scenario in all of Israel. Seventy spiritual leaders who made up Israel's highest court. It was like their supreme religious court. Not even one of them stood up for Christ. Not even one. And these are supposed to be the spiritual guides to the people. We, we don't know right now what happened to Nicodemus. Uh, we don't know uh, where anyone else might have been, but Scripture represents it as the whole Sanhedrin. Maybe Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, maybe they defected. Maybe they resigned. We aren't certain. But the whole lot of them stood against Christ. It's no no surprise then that Jesus felt compassion for the people of Israel. In Matthew 9, he saw that they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And, And then Jesus said to his people, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Yeah, there was literally no spiritual leadership in Israel. They did not recognize the time of their visitation. It wasn't as if there weren't plenty of synagogues. It wasn't as if there weren't enough leaders of the synagogues. They were plenteous. They had lots of leaders, lots of houses of worship had been built. Uh, Virtually every city contained a synagogue. But the shepherds over Israel were all in agreement. They didn't like what they saw with Jesus. They didn't like this guy. 
Uh, their first accusation was that he was deceiving their nation. Pilate didn't care. Pilate, well, he, he was a Roman. He, he wasn't involved with the Jewish religion at all. The theology of Juda- Judaism would have meant nothing to him in his worldview. It was annoyance more than anything. Next, they accused Jesus of forbidding to pay taxes. Uh, they were sure this would persuade the governor. The governor who was sent there to defend the interests of Rome, interests of Caesar. But a problem arose when he did not believe them. Jesus did not believe them. You know, Pilate surely would have prosecuted tax evasion. He surely would have, but he knew they were lying about Jesus. How how did he know they were lying about Jesus? Well, as I said before, Pilate, he was a shrewd character. Uh, He knew Israel's religious leaders hated paying taxes to Rome. They they loathed it. Uh, They loathed Caesar's image that was embossed on the denarius, the coin for a day's wages. They, they, they despised it. They claimed it was idolatrous. Everybody knew that the Pharisees were lovers of money. So if Jesus actually was forbidding people to pay taxes, would the Sanhedrin be turning him over to Pilate? Certainly not. They didn't want to pay taxes. Luke 20, verse 25 assures us they were lying about Christ in this. Pilate didn't buy their accusation for a minute. He knows that they would have taken any opportunity uh, to protest or evade taxes that they could possibly get. That isn't something that would have brought the Sanhedrin together. He probably responded you know, with a big yawn. A big yawn, huge eye roll to this accusation. Finally, they said he claims to be a Messiah, a king. A Jewish king, a Messiah. Uh, So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him and said, It is as you say. You know, I, um, I bet Pilate might have snickered as he saw Jesus confirm that he was the king of the Jews. Uh, But Pilate could care less about a so-called Messiah, a so-called Jewish king. Uh, Pilate despised Jews, didn't like anything about them or their religion. I bet he snickered at the Sanhedrin, who became so offended at Jesus' claim. He saw them, he saw the Sanhedrin as offended that this Christ standing before them was their king. You know, Pilate, he, he had seen some kings. He had seen some real kings, quote-unquote real kings in that day. We'll learn the th- same thing about Herod as we speak about him in a few moments. They had seen kings. And they would think to themselves, what was standing before them right now, this don't look like any king we've ever seen. The kings in those days, Caesar and, of course, uh, Herod, Antipas' dad, Herod the Great. Now those were some kings. They knew how to dress. They knew how to turn it on real well. Um, So he didn't buy that Jesus was their king, at least not yet. Um, I I really do wonder. I I, I do. I wonder with what inflection Pilate used as he he spoke, uh, the inflection in his voice as he replied to the Sanhedrin. I, I think it may have been a mocking derision. 
of the Sanhedrin and of Israel and of their kingly system. It may have been a ridiculing nature. I could have seen him standing there with Christ before them, tattered and and bloodied, and and said, so uh, this guy claims to be your king, right? Then he declares, I find no fault in him. You follow me? It's a mocking derision. I find no fault in this man. Uh, So he claims to be your king, big deal. I think probably uh, Pilate finds their frustration with Jesus claiming to be their king. I think he probably finds it amusing. Amusing. Uh, But verse 5 shows that they kept on insisting. The the term there implies an, an unwillingness to yield. An unwillingness to budge, as they declared, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. He rouses the multitudes, they say. Now, Pilate might be a little bit concerned about this, rousing the multitudes. That's a charge that Pilate just can't brush off. He, he, he dare not ignore that. He doesn't also want to deal with it. He doesn't want to deal with this. Pilate was not an elected official, as we know today. He was an appointed official. He was appointed to his political position, um, handpicked for the purpose of preserving order in this region of Judea. But like most politicians, you know, every decision as a political figure, every decision that was weighed had to be considered in light of its content of self-preservation. Pilate was very concerned about self-preservation. You know, every, every politician is. Every politician is always concerned with him or herself uh, coming to the conclusion, what do I have to gain if I get involved with this? What does this do for me if I deal with this situation? You know, if it is a ribbon cutting or if it is to uh, kiss babies somewhere in front of a camera, they're all in. They're all in. If there's a camera crew that's going to be there and if it's going to look good for me, I want in. But there's a foul aroma here. And Pilate smells what is going on. This is a religious dispute. This is a religious problem. And Jesus doesn't give the appearance of a threat But the masses are pledging allegiance to him. He knows this because the Sanhedrin are worked up. He knows that Jesus has a following. Very likely Pilate was aware of the following that came into Jerusalem uh, just a few days earlier as Jesus rode in in on a donkey. Uh, Pilate wasn't ignorant. He wasn't ignorant of what was going on in his city. If, If a figure had come in that had a large gathering, he would have known about it. So, um... He knows the Sanhedrin wouldn't have gone to all this trouble if there wasn't something underneath. But as, as with every religious dispute, with every religious dispute, you know, Pilate senses the prospect of offending half of the population. If I get involved here, I'm going to offend half. He, he surely heard Jesus had a large following. He doesn't want to light the fuse. He doesn't want to be the one to light the fuse on this. So if settling a, a religious dispute doesn't carry or doesn't offer any capacity to help you, why not find a way to pass it off? Why why not find a way just to to get rid of it? And and this is where Jesus starts to get the runaround from Pilate. 
Pontius Pilate perceives there's an opportunity here within their accusation in order to pawn this off on somebody else. Uh, he, he senses, you say, you say this whole thing started up in Galilee, right? Well, verse 6, when Pilate heard that, he asked whether the man, is he a Galilean? When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him off to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, this could give a, a dual opportunity to Pilate. He could get two things out of this. First, he really wants to wash his hands of this whole religious dispute that's going on. He doesn't want to be the one to deal with it. He can just pass that off to Herod. Second, he can transfer what he views as a compromising situation, a delicate one, to Herod, whom he doesn't like very much. Pilate and Herod did not like one another. In fact, verse 12 says that Pilate and Herod were enemies before this day. They, they didn't get along at all. They didn't like one another at this point. You know, Herod Antipas, the tetrarch or ruler over Galilee, he was an interesting character. He really was. There, there's a lot of history written about him. The son of Herod the Great. Many perceive Antipas as kind of a, an empty suit a do-nothing type of guy, a spoiled child type figure who never really accomplished much and you know, only wanted to be entertained all the time. Uh, he has that reputation, but it's not entirely accurate. Not entirely. When his dad died, Herod the Great, in 4 AD, Antipas was delegated to rule Galilee. He, he did that until 39 AD, so, so he governed for about 35 years. Uh, Think about it, that is a whole lot longer than any of our presidents ever had. He was in there a long time, 35 years. Uh, he lasted a while. He had some staying power. Uh, during that time, he built two great cities, Sephorus, which is near Nazareth, and then the great city on the Sea of Galilee called Tiberias. And that was a tribute he built in honor of Tiberius Caesar. So, so he had some accomplishments in his life, but he was immoral. He was an immoral figure. Uh, he pursued passion and entertainment. After visiting his half-brother Philip, Herod became infatuated with Philip's wife. Her name was Herodias. He married her, and then while hosting a big party for all of his friends, he then became infatuated with Herodias's daughter. The only historian... Uh, that mentions her that we are aware of is, is the well-known historian Josephus. He's a Jewish historian, and uh, he tells us that this daughter's name was Salome. We don't find that, uh, that identification in the passage. It is this Salome who, at the behest of her mother, that is Herodias, demanded John the Baptist's head on a platter. Mark 6, verse 28 says that Herod brought the head to the girl on a platter. It says she took the platter and handed it to her mother on the platter. Um, folks, this Herod, he's the one who executed the Christ's forerunner. John the Baptist. Just think about that as we look at the scene with Jesus standing before him. This is the Herod that executed John the Baptist. Um, Herod was captivated 
at the arrival of Jesus. He was fascinated with Jesus. Verse 8 says that Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. For he had wanted to see him for a long time. Because why? He had been hearing about him. And he was hoping to see him perform some kind of sign. Folks, life was a tangled web over at the Herodian uh, household. All right? It was a tangled web they weaved. He was a ruler of Galilee up north. Uh, because John the Baptist called out their adultery, Herodias was infuriated with John the Baptist. Then she manipulated her own daughter to demand the head, Salome, to demand the head of John the Baptist. Luke records quite a lot, actually, about the Herodian uh, quagmire. In Luke chapter 9, Luke tells us, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was happening with Jesus. He had heard somewhere, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said that by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that the one of the prophets of old had risen again. But Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And we're told that he kept on trying to see Jesus, kept wanting to see him. Some of the news about Jesus and his miracles, it may have come via a female disciple or follower of Christ. Her name was Joanna. In Luke 8, uh, verse 3, it says that she was the wife of Cusa. That, that's Herod's steward. So Cusa, he, he managed Herod's estate for him. I mean, he, he was a high roller. He, he, was, he was right there with Herod managing all of his stuff. And, and it is said that Cusa's wife, that is Joanna, was one of the many women who were supporting Jesus' ministry out of her own means. So, so Joanna, she, being a disciple of Jesus, she, she had some immediate access there into Herod's household. All right, Her husband was the steward. A likely considerable interaction with the women of Herod's household. Consider that. Consider that. Um, later on in Luke chapter 24, verse 10... Joanna was one of the women listed as approaching Jesus' tomb with spices earlier that Sunday morning. But she, with the others, found the open tomb with two angels telling them this, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you, say the angels, while he was still in Galilee. Again, we get the mention of back in Galilee. It's interesting, the emphasis of how all these women originated from Galilee. And then there is an obscure mention of one more. One other woman from Galilee. She was present at the cross where Jesus died. She is referenced again briefly as one of the women who also brought spices to the tomb, who it is claimed in Mark 15, verse 41, when Jesus was in Galilee, she too used to follow him and minister to him, along with the many other women of Galilee. 
And her name is Salome. Nah. Couldn't happen. Could it? Same Salome? You know, we know Herod's household had traveled to Jerusalem from Galilee for the Passover. We know that these women were from Galilee. Uh, Joanna and Salome, whoever she is, or Salome, they're both seen at standing at the foot of the cross and finding an empty tomb. Can't be certain. We can't know for sure. But I sure find it intriguing how Salome's name in the Hebrew means peace. Her own name means peace. I wonder if Christ had offered her God's peace. I wonder if, if this was Herodias' daughter. I guess we'll find out when we get there. Very interesting, uh, intriguing uh, when you think about it. Herod, by comparison, and meanwhile, uh, he, he was thrilled to see Jesus. He thought this was great. He welcomed the opportunity from Pilate. Uh, the opportunity that presented itself probably turned, uh, Herod probably turned quite appreciative towards Pilate for this wonderful opportunity. Verse 12 does say that these enemies became friends this day. But unlike Joanna and Salome, Herod didn't want to follow. He wasn't interested in following Jesus. He only wanted to be entertained by him. You want to find out some stuff about Jesus. So in verse 8, having heard about him, he hopes to see Jesus perform some kind of sign. Some kind of sign. Uh, This, folks, is about the only interest that the unregenerated heart has in Jesus. That's about it. Someone who isn't saved, doesn't believe, uh, the only thing that he or she hopes to see is just something something miraculous. Can you show me something? Can, Can you mix anything up? Mix a little powder together and show me something miraculous. Then maybe I will be impressed, says Herod. You know, miracles fascinate people. They really do. Everybody's out trying to find a miracle. Matthew 12, verse 39 says, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. They long for it. They long to see something that proves that God exists. Uh, now, that, that doesn't suggest that Jesus didn't perform many signs. Scripture assures us that he did perform many signs, many miracles, many wonders, sometimes before very large and unsuspecting crowds. But when evil people seek after Jesus, hoping for a sign, uh, he does not play their court jester. He is not an entertainer, not at all. Christ is not an entertainer. And, and therefore, people never get saved or are not to be saved by witnessing miracles. We don't get saved by witnessing miracles. It is actually quite the opposite. You have faith by not seeing anything. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest anything should boast, anyone should boast. We're saved through hearing the message of faith, and with faith it is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So people don't get saved by seeing something miraculous. Herod isn't going to save, uh, get saved here. He isn't going to see anything miraculous. So, so the church, folks, is never to conjure up and dance. 
before an unbelieving population, uh, just conjuring up miracles and wonders and signs in order to hopefully, let's just attract a crowd. Let's bring them through the doors and show them something they've never seen before. Folks, that would bring in the wrong kind of audience. That would bring in Herod. He was an unscrupulous ruler uh, who the passage says questioned Jesus with many words, or, or your translation might say at some length. He, he pressured Jesus. He pushed Jesus. Uh, Herod wanted to settle his mind. He was bothered. He wanted to settle his mind by discovering firsthand about this Jesus, um, whether or not the miracles that he had heard were so. He wanted to know, is he for real or is he just a legend? Yeah, I've heard these things about this Jesus. People have told me about him. But you know, there are no video cameras or any recordings in that day. Uh, if it were claimed that Jesus had fed 5,000 near a city, a city named Bethsaida, how would you really know? How would you know? Legends in Greek mythology, they were commonplace in that day. People believed many different things. So if Joanna or Salome had come to Herod and said that Jesus raised a widow's son from the dead by touching his, co- uh, his coffin in the city of Nain, how would Herod know for sure? How could he know for sure it wasn't just a made-up story? So Herod, he demands a sign. He wants a sign. He wants sight, not faith. We, we know how this is going to go. Verse 9, Jesus answered him, Nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing Jesus vehemently. So, so Herod turns up the heat a little bit, we see. Um, he starts mocking and mistreating Jesus, treats him with contempt. You know, probably thinking, you know, if I slap him around a little bit, maybe if I slap him around, maybe he will then, maybe he will then do something for me. You think about that for a second. If you and I were under a high-pressure situation, and, and we had the capacity to do something to get them to stop, the flesh would want them to stop, right? So if you could do something, Herod knows it's likely you would do it. I mean, if you could levitate a table or something in order to, to get people to quit hitting you in the face, you'd probably do it, right? Not Jesus. He doesn't say a word in his defense. Maybe, maybe just a little miracle, Herod uh, says would, would ease my mind, ease my conscience about everything that I've heard. Jesus doesn't say a word. He doesn't do anything. So what's Herod's conclusion since he hasn't seen anything? You know, he concludes, well, just what I thought all along. He's a myth. It's just Jesus can't do anything. He's a fake. You know, everything Herodias' uh, uh, friends told me everything she might have heard from Joanna, maybe from Salome as well. Everything that I've heard is a fraud. I haven't seen with my own eyes, so Jesus is a fake. It's a phony. Think of how many people today uh, continue to say, I will not believe until I see something. That's pandemic in the church today. As we look at this, have you ever marveled? I do. I, I, I marvel at this. The level of restraint that Jesus employs here. You know, imagine if 
you, like he, you'd already experienced the Sanhedrin and the Pilate's, uh, and Pilate's soldiers mocking you, spitting upon you, hitting you. And now you're standing just inches from the cruel tyrant, tyrant who took the head of John the Baptist, the forerunner, standing right within arm's reach of Herod. This is Herod who murdered the forerunner who announced that the kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. Uh, this, is the Her- uh, the same, uh, this is the same John the Baptist who baptized you in the Jordan. Baptized Christ and said, I am unworthy to tie his sandal. Same John the Baptist. Jesus said about him, no greater prophet has arisen among men than John the Baptist. And he's in a position where he could reach out right now and grab him by the neck. I have a pretty good idea what I would probably do in the flesh. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. He willingly endured the insults and the persecution. And through it all, and through his cross, he purchased salvation for a woman named Salome. You know, he brought God's peace. Jesus established God's peace through injustice. Think about that for a second. Because he suffered righteously. There was no deceit in his mouth. He suffered righteously. If I were to title this message again today, I would probably title it, Peace Through Injustice. Jesus doesn't respond like the world. He doesn't respond like the flesh of man. He doesn't react like we would towards his enemies. He doesn't do what we would do. I I would probably reach out and shake Herod. I probably would attempt to anyhow. Uh, I I would probably grab that platter this uh, Salome used and beat her in the head with it if I had the opportunity in the flesh. But doing so would not have allowed time for God's grace to reach Salome, whoever she was. You know, folks, we are in the dispensation of God's grace right now. We are under God's grace. Like Christ... We are not seeking complete justice. We are offering the gospel of peace through injustice. Redemption was achieved through injustice. It is written, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, 
But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Folks, have a little patience. Have a little patience. Give God a little time to reach His sheep. Allow Him to offer peace through injustice. You know, peace, was God, peace, with, excuse me, peace with God was achieved through the ultimate injustice. Christ willingly suffered injustice. And Scripture says He has called us to the same calling. The same calling. I'm going I'm to say it, folks. Any idiot can throw projectiles at police. You know, any moron can yell, no justice, no peace. But Christians know that peace is achieved through injustice, through enduring injustice, just as Christ endured. You know, how, how can Jesus do that? What power is in Him to not strike back? How can we refuse to utter a threat when treated unjustly for Christ? Why don't we just reach out and strangle the perpetrator each time that we are offended if we have the chance? Why? It's because we see what Jesus sees. We see an ultimate justice. We have faith in a God who justifies the ungodly. Vengeance belongs to the Father alone. That is the way of God. Folks, that is the way of God. It is written, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I don't know how it could be any clearer. Though he had every right to, because he was perfectly pure and sinless, uh, the eternal God of the universe, Christ did not act in his own defense. He didn't lash out, and neither do we. Neither do we. Why? For it is written, Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. Here's the question that's left. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's Luke 18, verse 7. Do not react. Do not strike. Do not lash out. What would have happened? This is what's so essential to understand. What would have happened... If God struck you or me down the first time we called for somebody's head, what would have happened if He would have struck us down at that time? Where would we be? Folks, leave room for the gospel of peace through justice, in, uh, through injustice. Jesus, you know, Jesus kept entrusting Himself to the one who judges rightly. Let's close. Um, 
I, I imagine as Pilate pawned Jesus off to Herod, he might have included some kind of note, some kind of instructions. Perhaps it was on Roman letterhead, all right? Official statement from Pilate. It probably said something like this. Greetings, Herod Antipas, distinguished ruler of Galilee. This man from your jurisdiction, whom is called Jesus of Nazareth, claims to be king over all Israel. What say you? So hoping to wash his hands of the controversy, Pilate inadvertently granted Herod his dream of cross-examining Jesus, the legend, now that he says was called Jesus, and, and Herod was left thoroughly unimpressed. Thoroughly unimpressed by Christ and that scene. Uh, so he commanded that bloodied and beaten Christ to be adorned with a gorgeous robe. A gorgeous robe. The Greek it implies the garment was both elegant and very splendid. A very splendid robe he put on Jesus. And, and he sent the pathetic-looking Jesus back to Pilate, dressed in this just brilliant robe fit for a king. And, and I don't know exactly how Pilate responded, but I think he loved it. I think he loved it. Neither Pilate nor Herod respected the Jews. They didn't think much of him. Pilate didn't care about a Jewish king. Herod wasn't Jewish. Like his dad, Herod the Great, he was Idumean. He was an appointed ruler as well. And years ago when his dad, Herod the Great, had heard an announcement that the king of Israel had been born in Bethlehem, he sent his soldiers to go out and strike him down. That's what his dad did. Antipas was already an adult at that time. He was already old enough to hear that story, and his father uh, was one who displayed much splendor. As I said, Herod, Antipas, and Pilate, they knew what kings were supposed to look like, and they didn't look anything like Jesus. They conclude at this point he isn't one of them. And, And this isn't the first time that Herod had heard rumors that there was another king in Israel. His dad had been told that, as well. But this dynasty of Herods would not believe that this pathetic sight standing before them was the king. From our scripture reading earlier, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking of Christ, grew up before God like a tender shoot and like a root out of porched gra- parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Nobody in those courts would esteem Christ Uh, That's something that Herod and Pilate shared in common on that day. They they thought this whole idea of of Jesus claiming to be king, seeing the Jewish Sanhedrin all stirred up in front of them, up in arms, they both thought this was really funny. That's what I think. I think they thought it was really funny. So when Herod sent back to Pilate the Christ... There arose between the two men a kind of mutual respect, having pawned the king of the Jews back and forth 
between them. I can imagine the smirk that probably occurred on Pilate's face when the guards brought Jesus in in that robe. He probably thought, man, this, this haired guy's kind of funny. Probably what he thought. And I imagine the guards bringing Pilate a note on Herodian letterhead this time. Most excellent Pontius, governor of Judea, in response to your inquiry about Jesus of Nazareth, I have thoroughly examined the subject and have made a determination regarding your question as to whether he is truly king of the Jews. And my conclusion is, yep. And they laughed. And they laughed. And Herod sent Jesus back wearing a splendid robe, and Pilate was impressed with Herod's vulgar insolence about the Christ. And Scripture says that Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. They did not esteem him. But now Christ has been brought back again and Pilate is going to be forced to examine him once again. What is he going to find? And I have to come back next week. <laughs>